Welcome to Redbird Buzz. I'm John Twork from University Marketing and Communications. Our guest today is Dr. Don McBride, a professor of psychology at Illinois State University and an expert in human memory. Dr. McBride arrived at Illinois State 25 years ago after earning a bachelor's from UCLA and a PhD in cognitive psychology from UC Irvine. In her decades of teaching and researching, Dr. McBride is credited with dozens of publications, and she's mentored several students in her human memory lab who are now making their own contributions as teachers and researchers in the field. Dr. McBride is featured in this fall's Redbird Scholar magazine, and she joins us now to discuss the inner workings of how we remember and how we forget. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Don McBride to Redbird Buzz. What's the word, Redbird? Start off by telling us about yourself and your journey to teaching and researching human memory here at Illinois State. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So uh, I came to Illinois State uh, from Southern California. Um, I came straight out of my Ph.D. program at UC Irvine, as you mentioned. Um, and I grew up in Southern California, um, very close to Disneyland, in fact, if uh, you're trying to figure out where that is. Um, and um, I came to Illinois State University because um, on my interview, I really appreciated um, the kindness and friendliness of the people here, um, as well as the nice balance at Illinois State in between teaching and research. Um, I enjoy both aspects equally of my career. Um, And so it was very appealing to be able to come to a place where I could work closely with students, spend a lot of time with students, but also pursue my research, um, in most cases, in collaboration with those students. Um, So I've been here 25 years and um, have really enjoyed my career here. It has to be so rewarding to have students who go through your lab who go on to earn PhDs, and now they have their own labs and are influencing the field uh, uh, that that you have a passion in, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm quite proud of some of my students who have gone on. It it makes me feel a little bit old knowing (laughs) that there are now tenured professors elsewhere in some cases, but um, they've certainly been very productive and um, successful in their own careers, and um, it's great that I was there at the beginning um, when they first decided that that this was the career for them. So, um, yes, it's definitely uh, very rewarding. All right, let's delve into the science of human memory, and we'll start with a basic question. How does human memory work, and why do some people seem to have a better memory than others? Well, um, human memory uh, is uh, generally reconstructive in nature, so it does not work like a video recorder of your events and experiences. Um, For the most part, we store um, bits and pieces of different events that we experience, Um, kind of separately. I mean, there's some binding of those pieces. There's some thing that kind of holds some of them together, um, in some cases better than, than other cases. Um, and then when we go to retrieve them, our memory works to try to pull those pieces back together. I like to think of it as, um, putting together a puzzle, um, where, 
you know, you may not even have all of the pieces. You may not have a very clear idea of what it's supposed to look like. Um, but, you know, all those pieces kind of get put back together in some way. Um, most of the time accurately, sometimes inaccurately, though. Um, and or bits may be missing. So we may not always remember all of the details. And in that way, it is very reconstructive and the same way that you might construct that full you know, piece of a puzzle to kind of see what that event was that you experienced. Um, as to why people have different memory abilities, um, some of it is just that over time, people have established strategies for themselves that work um, better than others. Um, sort of coming to sort of their own knowledge, I guess, of how um, some aspects of encoding help them remember better, um, ways and strategies that help them um, bring in information, connect it to information that they've already got stored. Um, if you're good at those kinds of things, the things that really help um, retrieve information later, then you might have a better memory. Um, and lots of other factors come into play. Um, emotion affects memory, age affects uh, your memory abilities in terms of encoding and retrieval. Um, so there are all sorts of things that contribute to these individual differences in memory. But just about anybody can have a good memory if they work at it. Um, it's something that's a skill that you develop. It's not like we're born with good memories and bad memory abilities. Um, it's really about how much you practice it, how much you are able to um, kind of develop these strategies um, for oneself. There's even um, a world memory championship um, where uh, people um, have to remember really unusual things like the order of, of cards in a playing deck and so forth and report them back with, with perfect accuracy. And um, lots of individuals have developed these strategies and skills to be able to do that. Um, an author who wrote a book um, called um, Walking, Walking with Einstein, I think it was called, uh, Joshua Furr, he wanted to know how people developed these skills and so he joined the competition himself and won that year actually won it um, wow. and so that's just an example of how someone can just decide to become a better memorizer um, and develop those skills to um, great use so I admittedly had not heard of the World Memory Championships until preparing for this interview, but I learned about it. Uh, as you mentioned, they uh, have super, uh, seemingly superhuman abilities, but you're saying they just uh, developed a skill set. Um, do you happen to, to know of some techniques, perhaps, for practicing memory so that folks who want to improve their memory, maybe not to the World Memory Championship level, but just regular folks like me, mm -hmm. um, how, how can one improve their memory? Well, it kind of depends on what you're trying to remember, mm -hmm. um, but some general um, strategies for that um, would be trying to connect one to things that you already know, um, testing your memory. So if you have a memory that you want to hold on to for a long time or some pieces of information that you need to hold on to for a long time, um, practicing retrieving them helps. Um, in other words, you make memory stronger by retrieving it. Um, each time you retrieve a memory, it gets stronger. You're more likely to retrieve it again in the future. Um, and then finally, there's sort of a um, oh, an unusual strategy where if you're trying to remember a list of items or you know an order to things, um, there's uh, something known as um, uh, a 
mnemonic called uh, the method of loci, um, which is also sometimes called um, a memory palace, um, which is used um, by people to you know help them remember just bits of information. Um, and it involves imagery. It involves sort of taking a common route or um, location, say um, rooms of your house, and creating images that connect the information to those locations so that later on you can kind of mentally rewalk the space um, that you've stored that information in. And the more bizarre you make those images, the more likely you are to remember them and then remember the information that's connected to that. Um, so just to give you a quick example, you know, if I were trying to remember a list of grocery items I needed at the store um, and I didn't have a chance to write them down or my phone's dead, whatever, <laughs> um, I might say, think about, you know, entering my house and say, you know, cookies are spilling out of the mailbox, okay? <laughs> and that's going to help me remember if I start, you know, mentally rewalk my house. I need cookies. They're on the list. And, you know, if, say, a pool of, you know, milk is on my porch and, you know, my dog is bathing in it or whatever, maybe I'll remember <laughs> milk and so forth. And so the more bizarre you make those images, um, you know, the more likely you are to remember them. This can be useful if, say, you're trying to remember things in a speech you have to give mm. or um, just, you know, other kinds of information that is ordered. It can really help you do that. Wow, I'll have to make my next grocery list that way <laughs> and, and see if that works. It, 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 it's very vivid, and mm -hmm. so I can see why it would. Um, okay, let's delve a little bit deeper now uh, in your human memory lab at Illinois State. You focus on four main areas, false memory, perspective memory, task order decisions, and facial recognition. So let's take those each uh, one at a time, and we'll start with false memory. Tell us uh, what that is, and uh, also tell us about the DRM paradigm. Sure. Uh, so false memory is basically um, any kind of memory error that you might make that um, is either a commission error where you remember something in a different way um, than it actually occurred, or an omission error where you're missing something and you, you can't remember. Most of the time, people just think of omission errors as forgetting, whereas commission errors are the kinds that are more commonly classified as false memories. Um, so, for example, you know, you um, have an argument with your significant other and, you know, you remember them saying one thing, but in reality they said something else. And so that would be an example, simple example of mm -hmm. a false memory. Um, and one of the most popular ways to study false memories um, in experimentally in the lab um, is to use what's known as the DRM procedure. Um, the DRM stands for Dies Rodeger McDermott. Um, those are the researchers who developed the method. Um, and hundreds of studies have been published using the DRM. The DRM is basically a simple procedure for creating benign false memories. Um, what researchers do is have participants study lists of items um, that are all related to a theme that is not ever presented. So for example, um, participants might hear or see the words slumber, dream, bed, blanket, night, and so forth. Um, and then later on, um, they are either presented with words to recognize and decide where they on the list, 
um, or they're asked to just simply write down or recall all of the items that were on the list they studied earlier. And very often people will either recognize or recall the item sleep, which is the theme for all of those items. Um, and that is, um, I guess, uh, one way. It's First of all, it's one way to um, very simply create a false memory in a very controlled environment so that you can manipulate some factors about the procedure um, to determine how easily they increase or decrease false memories for those theme items. Um, but it also illustrates a really important aspect of how memory works for humans, um, and that is to think about um, the, I guess, organization structure of information in terms of encoding it and retrieving it. So memory tends to be stored in that organizational structure, and when we retrieve, uh, we tend to use that organizational structure to help our memories, um, sometimes to its advantage um, if we're coming up with other items that belong to the theme that we've studied, but in other cases to our disadvantage if we're coming up with information that is related but that we hadn't actually experienced in the past. Um, so that's sort of a very basic way and I've used it in my own research in a number of studies. In the uh, Redbird Scholar article, it mentions that participants can falsely recognize the related or themed words not on the list, so in that case, sleep, which is the critical lure, uh, at rates of 50% or higher. And my takeaway of that is that our memory as humans is not that great. Um, and, and, you know, that can lead to either forgetting to pick up the milk at the store or whatever, uh, but also there's high stakes false memories, uh, say court testimonies, for example. Can you talk about um, where false memory uh, lies in sort of that, the, the high stakes memories or lack thereof? Sure. Um, one of the probably most um, well-known false memory researchers, um, Elizabeth Loftus, um, started some of this work looking specifically at um, how false memories can affect um, an eyewitness memory situation um, and found that there are all kinds of things that can affect one's memory that might be relevant for those situations such as the wording of questions that eyewitnesses are asked and um, how uh, what, what procedure is used in questioning eyewitnesses um, you know whether they are also exposed to um, other pers people's reports of um, an, an event that they experience. So there are all kinds of things that can, that can certainly affect eyewitness memory. Um, and so the study of false memory, I think, really um, applies to that situation best. Um, it does apply to other situations as well, but that's probably the most clear application of this kind of research. Now, my research tends to be more fundamentally basic in that sense of just better understanding how memory works and how false memories can be created. Um, but um, yeah, the applications of this kind of work uh, really go, go into um, some of those situations um, that are, as you mentioned, very high stakes um, in cases where, um, you know, someone's guilt or innocence may be determined based on how accurate someone's memory of an event is. Sure. Uh, 
And then there's false collective memory. Uh, and, and some of our listeners might be familiar with the Mandela effect. Um, what causes specific false memories to be shared by a large group of people? And, and maybe what are a few examples of those? Well, I think um, shared experiences is probably um, a contributing factor of those kinds of things. Um, I actually only recently learned about the Mandela effect um, and kind of the, that term and what sure. it what it actually means. But um, it seems to to refer really just to um, false memories that occur because um, of shared experiences of people uh, sort of in a particular part of society. Um, so for example, certain kinds of news coverage that lots of people are exposed to um, can influence their memory. Um, and so for example, the Nelson Mandela effect is about people um, falsely believing that he died in prison. Um, and one of the possible reasons for that particular false memory could be that news coverage, for example, in the United States, covered much more of his prison term than his presidency of mm. South America, of South Africa. And so, um, you know, people often forget that he got out of prison and was president of South Africa um, because there's so much focus on the time he spent in prison. Um, and so that is what is at the forefront of people's recollective experience when they try to think about that or are questioned about those things. And it's it, it would be similar in other cases. I've even seen research that looks at how um, certain kinds of um, consumer um, ads like logos um, for companies um, can be falsely uh, remembered in a very consistent way by people in specific parts of the world um, based on sort of their own um, I guess, experiences with that product or that that logo, that company, that advertising, and so forth. Fruit of the Loom apparently does not have a cornucopia in it, which <laughs> shocks me. I, I still need to look that up, but I found that as I was researching false collective memory. It's, a, it's actually a fascinating mm -hmm. topic and worth a Google, I would yeah. suggest. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move on to prospective memory, mm -hmm. uh, memory that we use every day. Um, t tell us about this, and, and this, this one deeply impacts uh, everyone, it seems like. Perspective yes. memory. Absolutely. Um, perspective memory is something we use every single day. Um, anytime we form an intention that we um, plan to do something in, in the future, um, we are using perspective memory to try to remember that. And it could be something as simple as, what did I walk into this room for when <laughs> you've walked from the kitchen to, say, your bedroom, um, to, you know, I have to remember to show up at a doctor's appointment at 2 p.m. in two weeks time, you know, that kind of thing. Um, some of that kind of memory is really important. Um, so remembering to take medication at certain times of the day for people or even remembering, did I already take my medication or do I still need to take my medication? Um, trying to distinguish between an intention that's been fulfilled already versus one that's been unfulfilled um, to that point. So um, perspective memory is um, one that I think is probably one of the most common types of memory failures that people will report. Like if they say I have a terrible memory, what they usually mean is not I can't remember, you know, my experience from this morning. What they usually mean is 
I can't remember to get my, you know, report done and sent in on time. I can't remember to show up um, at the right time to meet my friends for lunch. I, you know, that's the kind of thing that they're usually talking about. And it is also the kind of thing that as people get older, they tend to report problems with. Um, and so older people tend to rely more on um devices, um, reminders, those external cues, external reminders to help get them um, through those fulfilling, fulfilling those intentions. And that seems like a double-edged sword almost to me, technology, because uh, perspective memory involves um, a, a cognitive, another cognitive process that creates a distraction, right? And, and it seems like technology can both aid and then also, so many times I find myself uh, you know, f- uh, losing my mental uh, uh, train of thought because my phone vibrates or mm-hmm. I get an email. Um, so uh, how does technology play a, a role in perspective memory? Well, um, it certainly can help us with perspective memory. Um, you know, we can use technology to aid us. But um, there's also research that is looking at a trade-off between the cost and benefits of um, making those reminders. In fact, you know, if you suddenly think I need to set a reminder for myself of, you know, something I need to do later, well, you have to stop whatever task it is you're doing at that time, break off your concentration and attention from that specific task to set a reminder for later. Um, and then, of course, later you might be interrupting yet another task with the reminder when it goes off. Um, so there actually is a, a line of research that's been looking at those kinds of Um, external reminders um, and the trade-offs and so far the research that I have read has suggested that that, um, even when it is not optimal to do so people tend to use those external reminders more um, than is necessary to be accurate so I think in general as a society we are dependent a little bit on that now whether that's changed from the past or not I don't know Um, the research can't really um, uh, address that in 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 that kind of can't really address that kind of question but um, what it can show us is that we do have a bias at this point to use external um, aids even when um, it's not really to our benefit. Um, it's not necessarily going to help us remember any better than we would on our own. Yeah, I can certainly remember times where I've been looking at my phone's uh, ad, you know, on a calendar event or my alarm, and then I can't even remember what I am intending to put in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and now I'm just, yeah, completely stuck at that point. Let's talk about task order decisions uh, and the idea of procrastination. Sure. Um, so I actually came to that line of work through prospective memory. Um, so, uh, as we were talking about, um, offloading intentions and helping us remember them, um, it sort of occurred to me as I was looking and hearing about, um, research in task order decisions that, um, if you do a task immediately, then you don't have to try to remember it for the future. Um, and that actually is exactly what procrastination is. It is doing a task as early as ne- as, as possible, um, even if it's not necessary to do it that early, and even if there's an extra cost to doing it that early. Um, this came from research in um, 
um, perceptual motor um, behavior um, by a researcher named David Rosenbaum. Um, and they were doing a study where they had participants walking down an alley um, where there was a bucket kind of on each side of the alley. And their job was to basically pick up whichever bucket they wanted, carry it down the alley and drop it on the table. Uh, and they had set up this study as a way to examine sort of synchronicity between picking objects up and walking behaviors. Um, but they found something really unusual, and that is that people overwhelmingly picked up the first bucket rather than the bucket closer to the table that they were going to drop it off on, meaning they had to carry the bucket farther in order to um, complete the task with the bucket that was closer. Um, they found this even when they filled the buckets with pennies that made them heavier, um, and people still picked up the closer bucket. Um, and basically, when they were questioned, the participants said things like, well, I just wanted to get it done. I just wanted <laughs> to, to get it over with. And um, the researchers then proposed that one of the reasons people might be doing this behavior is to essentially clear their minds of a task that needs to be completed sometime in the future. In this case, it was very shortly into the future, um, but it essentially cleared mental resources up for other tasks. Um, and so uh, as I was speaking to David one time about all of this, it became clear how this was related to my work in prospective memory. Um, because essentially what you're doing is taking away the need for prospective memory if you procrastinate. Um, and so I began doing some work um, on the cognitive um, task. Da David's work is mostly on perceptual motor behavior, and so they continue to pursue work in the perceptual motor behaviors of picking things up and moving them around and so forth. Um, but in my lab, um, I created a task where people have to move things on a computer screen and then also perform a cognitive task um, that um, they can kind of choose when to do. And we were able to replicate their original findings with the buckets where people will do a cognitive task earlier than moving things on a screen because they want to get it done, essentially. Um, to clear up resources for moving the things around on the screen that we've asked them to do. And so I've continued to explore this as a way to better understand, um, you know, why people procrastinate. And it seems to be related so far based on the data. This is a fairly recent finding. Um, but it does seem to be related to this idea that people want to clear up their minds clear you know um, make more cognitive resources available for other tasks um, and so they'll do a task rather than have to try to remember it for later what i immediately thought of when i read about this was email and how you know if you have an office job and, and you're working on a project or a task and then you get that ping that you have an incoming email mm -hmm. the impulse, at least for me, uh, and I think for many others, is to stop what you're doing, go check the email, uh, and respond to it if you need to, to clear it out of the inbox. Mm -hmm. But yep. what you're saying is that uh, from a cognitive perspective, it might be better to let those sit, finish the project, and then get back to the, uh, ch check the email all at once? It can. Um, it really depends. So, you know, if you think about that as a procrastination, you stop what you're doing and you read the email earlier than you would necessarily need to, 
Um, there is a bit of a cost because you are removing your uh, attention, but what you're also doing is taking away that need to remember to go back and read the email later. Mm. So if you continued working on the task, you might completely forget that there's this email there um, and not read it. And maybe it turns out to be important. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. Um, the procrastination behavior really is just about understanding, um, at this point in the research anyway, is just about understanding um, how often people do those behaviors and why they do those behaviors. Not necessarily that one is better than another. I mean, sure. we're, you know, it may turn out that, that that's the case, but we haven't gotten that far in the research. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it could be that, that, um, if you procrastinate, well, then you're more likely to make mistakes on the task that, yeah. You know, if you go ahead and answer that email without really thinking it through, then you might be making some error in how you respond to that email. Um, and so there could be a cost to procrastination that is unknown as of yet, but yet we still have this sort of, I guess, urgency. It's even been suggested in the research that this is automatic, that mm. um, we don't consciously stop and think, oh, I must do that. It's more that, okay, I have this task. It's, it's you know, in my, my mind that I have to do this. And so there's this sort of urgency to get something done, even if you're having to stop something else to do it. So yeah. that's fascinating. Um, Let's let's talk about your last area of research, which is facial recognition. Sure. Um, this is an area that I haven't done a whole lot of work in, but um, it came from a student's interest, um, trying to better understand uh, the effects of emotional expression on facial recognition. Um, one of the things that he noticed in reading the literature was that um, when tests were done over a longer period of time and and when I say longer I mean you know with a 20 minute delay or so that gets you into sort of long-term memory range um, expressions that have a, sort of a happy emotion portrayed tend to be remembered than ones with negative emotions like um, sadness or anger um, but if they're tested at a very short period of time um, like on the order of mere seconds um, more negative, in particular, angry faces tend to be better remembered. Um, and, and so facial recognition tends to be more accurate. And so we started to try to explore why that is the case. Um, by first kind of looking at, in a single study, the time course of facial recognition. <clears throat> and so uh, we kind of looked at um, how quickly facial recognition declines based on the emotional expression that is on the faces. People would study faces that were novel, people they didn't know. Um, some had happy expressions, some had angry expressions. Um, they would then be tested on a subset of those faces. Look at the face, is this one you rec recognize from earlier, yes or no, um, at various delays. And we found that um, for angry faces, they do tend to be remembered um, better than happy faces at very short delays, but that drops very quickly. Um, and so by the time you get out to about 20 minutes, happy faces then are better remembered. Um, and, you know, the happy face um, facial recognition didn't really decline very much over that period of time. Mm. So. Um, it helped us. It helped us sort of take one more step towards understanding how facial expression itself affects 
facial recognition in terms of its time course. So in other words, how long you have to remember the face for or trying to remember the face for. In most cases, we're talking about facial recognition that is going to be in long-term memory. So you don't usually have to recognize a face again mere seconds after you've encoded it. Um, but in most cases, instead, you're trying to do it over a long period of time. And so the research would suggest then that if you meet someone with a happy expression, um, you're more likely to remember them in the long term. And there are all sorts of possible reasons for that um, that we just haven't been able to determine yet. So. so many puzzle pieces in the research of human memory. It's fascinating stuff. And uh, you're an expert in the area and have been researching it for 25 years. Why is all of this research so important? Well, uh, we've already touched on the idea of eyewitness memory, so there are some clear applications to that. But just in general, if people better understand um, in their daily lives how memory works or doesn't, then, you know, they can better use that knowledge um, to make decisions and make judgments about other people's behavior. So, you know, if you know that memory is not working like a video recorder such that you remember everything in detail, um, it's... It helps you, I guess, better understand how to, say, evaluate what other people are telling you. Um, you know, is it likely that someone's going to remember all the details of a conversation? No. Um, is it likely that an eyewitness, even if they're very confident, um, is going to remember every detail of an event that they experienced, especially if there was some emotion, anxiety involved? Probably not. And so if you serve on a jury, say, then it's important to understand, um, you know, how memory comes into play in a lot of different situations. Um, I also just generally challenge anyone to come up with um, a task that they perform any part of their, their lives that memory is not involved in. It's pervasive. It is something that we use all the time for just about everything. Um, and so understanding better how it works can you know help you, one, improve your memory. We talked about that it's a skill. The more you practice, the better you get at it, um, but also you know, be able to understand, you know, when other people are interacting with you, um, you know, you may think you remember something a particular way, another person remembers it differently. Well, it may be that neither of you is correct. And so, you know, just having some understanding of that and um, being able to interact with others better um, can, um, I guess, you know, improve your people's lives. We've touched on technology also and, and how that uh, can, can be a benefit and sometimes a detriment to, to memory. Um, I'm, I'm also curious about, um, you know, the, 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 as, you t uh, as the brain uh, tries to reconstruct these memories, how it also uses photos and videos perhaps in, in, in that sense. And kids nowadays are growing up with, with more photos and videos than ever before. And I'm interested personally as a parent, you know, we, I have thousands and thousands of photos and videos that my sons love to look at. And so as they're creating childhood memories, how do those photos and, and videos potentially impact their memories? Um, it, are they just a tool for reconstructing a more accurate memory or are they creating false memories because of yeah. these photos and videos? Well, the, the answer is probably both, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, those kinds of things can serve as um, really good cues for remembering an experience. 
um, but they also can create false memories. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a common kind of anecdote that someone might say, oh, I remember this experience, you know, from when I was three or whatever. They may or may not, but, you know, having seen pictures of, you know, that birthday party or whatever it was, and hearing their parents talk about it, tell the story over and over and over, could cre very easily create a false memory for having actually remembered that event. So, um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's a mixed bag. I mean, you probably are getting more cues for remembering certain events and experiences, but you're probably also getting a chance to create false memories and thinking you actually remember something from childhood later on that you really just only saw pictures and such of. So, um, so yeah, I think that, um, you know, technology can be both um, a benefit and, and a curse. So <laughs> as far as memory goes. <laughs> and in so many other areas too. Um, last question, Dawn, and we'll let you go. Uh, it's, this has all been so fascinating today, but uh, where, where do you see the direction of, of human memory research going? What are some areas perhaps to expand the research? Um, I think prospective memory is one of those areas that I think has um, become um, much more important um, as we move forward. Um, it's, you know, as we age as a society, um, and uh, generally speaking, we have to con be concerned about um, our cognitive health as we get older. Um, prospective memory is sort of one of those things where if we better understand how to help people remember daily tasks um, and whether or not they've been completed, um, that I think has the potential to really um, benefit um, our lives um, overall. Um, so I think that is an area where I think we're going to see some, some important growth as far as research goes, um, because it has such importance in everyday life. Um, so that's, that's sort of one area. And that's one of the reasons that I have chosen to study that area is that it is so important, um, for everyone's everyday lives. Um, and you know, there is the potential for, um, aiding us as we age and, uh, trying to fight some of the cognitive declines that um, everyone experiences and then that also certain people, some people, experience in extreme ways. Well, we look forward to continuing to follow your research as uh, more and more becomes known about human memory. It's, it's really interesting stuff. And Dawn, thank you so much for joining us and discussing it with us today. Sure. Happy to be here. That was Professor of Psychology, Dr. Dawn McBride, and you can read more about Dr. McBride in this fall's Redbird Scholar magazine by visiting illinoisstate.edu slash redbirdscholar. Thanks for listening to Redbird Buzz, and be sure to tune in next time for more stories from Beyond the Quad.